Well, a little bit unusually this morning, our children's story, our Jesus story, is actually going to be also the scripture reading for Pastor Mark's sermon. And I'm going to ask Ellie to come and read the um, Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to go back to the flannel graph board and I'll illustrate it for you guys there. So Ellie, why don't you come? In those days, Caesar Augustus made a law. It required that a list be made of everyone in the whole Roman world. It was the first time a list was made of the people while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to their own town to be listed. So Joseph went also. He went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. That is where Bethlehem, the town of David, was. Joseph went there because he belonged to the family line of David. He went there with Mary to be listed. Mary was engaged to him, and she was expecting a baby. While Joseph and Mary were there, the time came for the child to be born. She gave birth to her first baby. It was a boy. She wrapped him in large strips of cloth. Then she placed him in a manger. That's because there was no guest room where they could stay. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. It was night, and they were taking care of their sheep. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. It will bring great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Here is how you will know I am telling you the truth. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a large group of angels from heaven also appeared. They were praising God, and they said, May glory be given to God in the highest heaven, and may peace be given to those he is pleased with on earth. The angels left and went into heaven. Then the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby. The baby was lying in the manger. After the shepherds had seen him, they told everyone. They reported what the angel had said about this child. All who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary kept all these things like a secret treasure in her heart. She thought about them over and over. The shepherds returned. They gave glory and praise to God. Everything they had seen and heard was just as they had been told. Thank you, Ellie. Let's uh, pray as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word preached.
Heavenly Father, thank you for the tools that you have given us over the centuries to study your word, to understand your word with greater depth and clarity, whether that's video, a live stream, a flannel graph. Lord, I pray that we would use all the tools that you have given to us in order to make your word clear, which, as Paul says, is how we ought to speak. Father, you have given us, most of all, most notably, the gift of the preaching of your word. Lord God, may you work through Pastor Mark this morning and herald your message of salvation to us through him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We find in Luke 2 the classical telling of the Christmas story. But how do we know that? It's the classical version of the Christmas story. We know that, of course, because it's the one Linus recites on a Charlie Brown Christmas, which I get, get a chance to watch almost every year, if not every year, and is my favorite by far. But surely it's more than that that makes this the classical telling, and it is. It's the classical telling because Luke's gospel is written to provide a history of the events associated with Jesus Christ from beginning to end of his earthly ministry. As an historical document, Luke provides many factual details that anchor the arrival of our Lord and Savior, as well as our Christian faith, in real, verifiable, and true human history. Countless non-Christian-y, unbiblical traditions and attractions have sprung up. Not all of them are bad, but mostly so that somebody can make a buck. But these Bible stories aren't fanciful tales we tell our our children to justify the giving and the receiving of gifts. These are historical events. They really happened. They are true history. You may have heard recently about another possible historical marker of the Christmas story, the Christ whose birth is at the heart of it, and as well as the faith in him that was born that first Christmas morn, and that is the approach of the Christmas star. Have any of you heard about this? Tomorrow night, and I do mean tomorrow night, December 21st, 2020, also the first official day of winter and the shortest day of the year, in our southern or southwestern sky, so right over in that direction somewhere, at just about sunset, if the sky is clear, which it's not looking great right now, it's about 80% chance of snow at 6 o'clock tomorrow evening. But in any way, we too, if we could see it, and we can via internet or some other means, ought to be able to see something like what is described in Matthew 2, where we read these words from verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And behold, the star 
that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, due to our perspective, the two largest planets in our solar system, Saturn and Jupiter, move in such a way that they seem to join together. Now, they're, they're set off from each other, of course. They're many, many millions of miles away from each other. But from our perspective, they seem to make or come close to making one object in the sky, one bigger, brighter celestial object, which you might think was a very big star. Because of their regular orbits around our sun, this happens about once every 20 years. But this year, they will appear together and at night so we can see them, closer and more like one object or star than in nearly 800 years. Since 1226, the year 1226, back in the Renaissance. Maybe that's why I was thinking about the Renaissance this morning. On even even rarer occasions, they appear in triple conjunction, which means they stay close and appear to conjoin three times over the course of a few weeks or months. This might explain the length of time the Christmas star seems to hang around in Matthew's account. This fourth Sunday of Advent, I'd like to continue our series, Things into Which Angels Long to Look, with the true historical account of heaven literally coming down to earth. Angels, the glory of the Lord, the heavenly host, the Holy One of Israel, all on a single night. The title of our sermon for this morning is Glory to God in the Highest and Peace to All. This, of course, is taken from the angel's proclamation announcing the arrival, the advent of Jesus' birth. We'll also see that it's a proclamation of hope for all the world, So the central truth of our message for this morning is, and you've got it there in your upper left-hand corner of your bulletin, all creation displays God's sovereign glory. All creation displays God's sovereign glory, including the historical events within it, and God's sovereign peace is given for us all. One more time. All creation displays God's sovereign glory, including the historical events within it, and God's sovereign peace is offered to all or is given to all. Now, when we say God's sovereign glory, we mean the glory God has always displayed and received in his Trinitarian union, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He alone is God. He is both creator and sovereign of all. He is glorious, hence God's sovereign glory. And when we say God's sovereign peace, we're talking about the very peace of God, brought to our minds, our hearts, and into our relationships with God and with each other and with others forever. I'm hearing in my head right now the finale of Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the idea. I think we can say with full faith, uh, sorry, um, I skipped a line. Occasionally, we encounter skeptics, unbelievers who say something like, Well, the Bible says it was a star over Bethlehem, but now you're saying it wasn't? Even if it was this phenomenon, it was two planets, not a star. Shouldn't God's word be more accurate than that? 
Well, I think we can stay with, say with full faith and integrity, no, I don't, or nor we, no, we don't. God's word written in Holy Scripture, also known as the Bible, was written over roughly a 2,000-year period from 2,000 to 4,000 years ago. Even with the Holy Spirit moving them to write, we can't expect them to have 21st century language and understanding for what they wrote. Luke didn't have to be a planetary astronomer or a cosmologist to qualify to write intelligibly and with historical accuracy the story of Christmas. In other words, there's no difference to the meaning of this event whether we say a star or realize it might have been Jupiter and Saturn coming together to make one very big celestial object in the sky above Bethlehem or, as others suggest, an actual star going supernova. To be honest, I've always preferred the supernova option. It just seems right to me that an explosive cosmic event would hail in the heavens one of the most consequential events in the history of the world, the birth of the Savior of the world and Lord of all. But perhaps the conjunction option makes most sense given the evidence. As I mentioned earlier, if we have clear skies, we might see something similar tomorrow, though not as spectacular. Apparently, it'll be better with binoculars or a telescope or perhaps even over the internets. But the point, the major point of this lengthy introduction to our message this morning is that our faith is established firmly and profoundly in the real and truly historical context of God's glory and creation and his ongoing and gracious, gracious relationship with his people in history. Last Sunday, I introduced you to the Right Reverend Dr. N.T. Wright and his excellent little book, God and the Pandemic, A Christian Reflection on the Coronavirus and Its Aftermath. As Michelle mentioned a little bit earlier in our service during the announcements, and you see there in your bulletin, we may have a reading discussion group uh, emerging around this book via Zoom. Um, do let me know if you're interested in that. Anyway, Wright continued in his excellent little book, specifically concerning the New Testament, quote here, one of the great New Testament words is now. That was then, this is now. But now, says St. Paul, moving from his analysis of human plight to his exposition of God's solution in Romans 3, verse 21, something new is happening. The time is fulfilled, said Jesus, and his hearers, conscious of living within the perplexing story of Israel's scripture, at least picked up something long awaited was now arriving. That was certainly true here for Dr. Luke when in verse one of chapter two, look there with me, he writes, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when, or perhaps it might be, translators have noted, it might be better to translate that before Quirinius was governor of Syria. It, it also fits the his, what seems to be the historical evidence as well. So that it might actually read, this was the first registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. This registration event encompassed the entire known world of the time, the whole Roman Empire, all people from occupied lands who had moved away for some reason, marriage, job, exile, whatever the reason might be, they had to get up 
and travel from where they were living and go back to their hometown, as it were. And it was all to bring about God's sovereign glory and his sovereign will. They didn't know that, of course, or at least almost nobody did. Angels had visited Mary and Joseph to give them a bit of a heads up, but even Mary and Joseph didn't seem to connect the migration to register with fulfilling God's prophetic word that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and the ancestral home of Joseph and his family. So we continue to read in verses 4 and following, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. There have been far more bad Christian movies, or, or rather Christmas movies, than good ones made. Perhaps even more than there are ugly sweaters. Do you all do the ugly sweater thing? I, I don't. I've tried it. It doesn't work. But if you really want a good movie, consider the nativity story. The nativity story. It's the best we found in telling the Christmas story, both biblically and realistically. It's really quite something. But they also, Joseph and Mary, seemed to be taken a bit by surprise that Mary was about to give birth, that she was going to deliver her special cargo, the Messiah of Israel, the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ, who'd save his people from, their, from our sins. They, they just didn't, if, if I can say this, they didn't seem really to be prepared. Maybe it wasn't quite real to them. We've all been there, right? Well, not there exactly, but we've been in that, that place where we've all anticipated something but didn't really expect it until it happened, and then we weren't ready for it. Then again, maybe they were just making their way, by faith, taking it one day at a time. And so in verses 6 and 7 of Luke 2, we read these words, And while they were there, that is, while they were in Bethlehem for Joseph and his family to be registered, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. Anyone who's become a parent and witnessed the birth of your baby, whether because you were the mother and, well, you had to be there, or the father because you in some way chose to be there, we understand something about the life change that happened for Mary and Joseph in that one line. Notice how matter-of-factly Luke records this massive bit of human history, quoting again, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth. (laughs) Dr. Luke delivers it with about as much animation as an article on page 7 of the newspaper. That first nativity event was absolutely 100%, no doubt about it, ordinary. Well, except for the angels and the manger part and the shepherd's part and the magi later part. But in terms of the actual birth, it was absolutely ordinary and there would have been no reason for anyone to have taken any notice of it whatsoever, except that it was outside and and not inside, perhaps. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, 
on the one hand, we can say, of course Jesus was a firstborn son. Mary was a virgin, for crying out loud. But beyond this acknowledgement of the mere fact of Jesus' lineage, Jesus' identity as firstborn was profoundly meaningful in a number of other ways. In other words, he had to be the firstborn because he was from eternity the firstborn. It's important for us to catch that this note wouldn't have been a mere mention of fact. To the contrary, firstborn sons carried special significance and expectation. The firstborn son was not only the primary heir and head, but he was also to be dedicated to the Lord. So now we're ready to get a bit beyond the Christmas story, if only for a moment, but with understanding of both the Christmas story as well as the cross and the resurrection. In Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, we read, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ, in order that Jesus Christ, he, Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. With the coming of Jesus Christ, and especially in his death and resurrection from the dead, something radically changed. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead causes us to be reborn, and so Jesus is, quoting here, the firstborn from among many brothers. He raised from the dead, we reborn into life. Even more comprehensively, we find the imagery repeated again a couple of times, but more and bigger in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Quoting here, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ was, is, and he forever will be the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of a virgin. The firstborn among many brothers. And the firstborn from among the dead. On this day in the city of David is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. All of this was true before Bethlehem in God's Son in the Trinity. All of this was true there in Bethlehem as God's sovereign plan unfolded. All of this will be true at the end of the age as Mary's baby boy returns to complete what his father has set in motion. If I was looking for an historical marker that this event or any event was worth paying attention to, humble shepherds out watching their sheep, an angel of the Lord or two, the glory as of the only God, and a multitude of the heavenly host would be most helpful. And don't you know, that's precisely what we get in verses 8 and following. Look there with me. And in the same region, 
There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for I, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I want you to note that. I, I bring you great news, good news, rather, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And what, what is that news? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. I'm not really sure how it happened. But at some point, Christmas became something other than glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. But it did. And my hope is that we can get back to some of that starting now. I don't want you to misunderstand, though. I'm not saying we should join the extremist and throw out all of our Christmassy things. I did say earlier that not everything about Christmas today is bad. I simply mean we need to restore and return to the meaning of Christmas. What would it mean for us, then, to make Christmas to be about, once again, the glory of God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased? Honestly, I think the shepherds can help us with this question. Did, did you notice from verse 15, the shepherds take up the rest of the text? Truly, it's been from verse 8, we've had shepherds and angels. So this passage is dominated, almost all of it, by shepherds, at least from verse 8 through verse 20. In a nutshell, the shepherds first avoided having heart attacks, each of them in the sight of the angels. It says they were terrified when the angels showed up, and I imagine we would be too. Then the shepherds listened to what the angel of the Lord told them. Then they marveled at the heavenly host. And then they went to investigate what they'd been told. This brings us to verse 15. Read it again with me. Verses 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven... The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Well, here the shepherds listened to the good news they were told, and they went to investigate the truth of it. We see that here in verses 15 and 16. Now, we can say, well, of course they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, but we know the story. They didn't. Nevertheless, they went to find out. This is yet another of those times when I don't think we give Bible people enough credit for their courage and their faith. And here they listened and they investigated. And when they did, they found the situation just as the angel of the Lord had told them to expect. They recognized, I think, that they were eyewitnesses to the arrival of Messiah. 
God's own Son, the Word made flesh, Christ who was coming into the world, or some variation of that. They may not have known all of that. But the, but the shepherds listened, and they went to investigate. And after they verified the good news that they had heard from the angel and saw it with their own eyes, the shepherds began to tell others what they had heard, verses 17 and 18. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child or this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I find very interesting that the shepherds begin their proclaiming while they're in the midst of the nativity scene itself. It seems that they bubble over with enthusiasm. They can hardly believe their eyes and ears, what they were seeing and what they were hearing. But it comported exactly with what the angel of the Lord had told them just a little while before. And they had to tell Joseph and Mary what they had heard. And this would have confirmed also what both Joseph and Mary had heard individually from the angels about this very night. So the shepherds believed and investigated. They began to tell others what they had heard when they validated the truth of it. Now, verse 19 is quite familiar to most of us, but in service of the story, it seems a bit of a diversion. It's kind of, it seems like an insert. It seems like it's just kind of put in there, unless it's one of those historical details that validates the story that that the story does not depend on. It's this sort of detail that moves historians to think, that's a true story. There's no other reason for, for including that. The story doesn't depend on it. It's a a small detail that validates the rest of the story. And what does it say? But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I don't have any new theories or warm fuzzies about what this means. You mothers can probably come closer than I approximating what Mary was experiencing on that night. We can take from this, I think, that Mary was a humble, modest, and thoughtful woman. We do see this very observation, almost word for word, near the end of the same chapter in Luke, where we read in verse 51, and she and Jesus's mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So this seems to reflect a significant personality trait. She may have been an exceptionally thoughtful woman contemplating what was going on around her. Well, finally, at some point along their way, the shepherds believed what they saw and what they had heard. They believed what they were told about these events. And so the text tells us, in verse 20, and the shepherds returned from where they'd come, glorifying And praising God for all they had seen, heard, and seen. And here's here's the, the linchpin of the whole scene. As it had been told them. So we come full full circle from asserting that these are historical events that we can lean on, that we can depend on, that we can believe that we can take as fact. And here at the end, the very end, right at, right at, the, right at the, the last part of this little section is a validating 
little piece of information that one of the reasons the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen is that they had been told beforehand that that's exactly what they would hear and they would see as it had been told them. This is the wonder of Christmas. We can believe and hope beyond ourselves and our situations to a reality, a future that is filled with joy, peace, and glory forever. But in the interim, perhaps for a little while, we can approximate the wonder of shepherds seeing and hearing from angels as they herald the coming of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We might even be able to glimpse the star that alighted overhead. Let's pray together. Lord, we're here at another Christmas Sunday. And it has been a a difficult, stressful, frustrating year. We're still in the midst of a pandemic that is keeping us from exercising most of the freedoms that we normally enjoy. And we do so willingly uh, in care and concern of others around us, as well as to protect ourselves. But Lord, we pray that this COVID scourge would pass, that... uh, whether by your hand or by vaccinations that uh, get uh, through uh, to the numbers that uh, make a real difference, Lord, we pray that this will pass uh, and it would do so soon. And I pray that you would keep us safe until that time. And Lord, as we begin to think about gathering as families, perhaps in a different way, perhaps, uh, you know, over a Zoom call or a FaceTime call or um, some other uh, means with our families, we pray, Lord, that we would pause and remember Jesus. Remember the condescension that happened from the throne of grace to the manger in Bethlehem. We can't imagine it. It's completely beyond us, and yet that's the story. And there were eyewitnesses to that event, lowly shepherds from out in the fields, and heavenly angels heralding your coming. And a humble couple who didn't ask for this and all the difficulty that they had because of the circumstances. We thank you for your ongoing faithfulness to us and also the, the reality that we can't, we'll never be able to figure you out in the sense that we'll, we know what you're doing and we know what you're going to do because you surprise us at every turn. And we thank you for that surprising love and that surprising grace and that surprising mercy. And in this Season of Christmas, Lord, we pray that you will come and join us as we celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've noted many times that neither Mark nor John
include birth narratives in their Gospels. And there are some conclusions we might draw from that fact. But that's not to say John doesn't address the circumstance of Jesus' arrival. He does. It's just in more theological terms, giving us a deeper sense of who Jesus is and what he was doing there in Bethlehem on that night under that star with those people. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Picking it up at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Merry, happy Christmas to you and to yours, even during this very strange season. We hope to see you next time.